Hello, and welcome to the podcast devoted to helping you win the race Christ has marked out for you. Author David Jeremiah observes, The biblical context for viewing all of life's events is called spiritual warfare, the age-old conflict between the kingdom of darkness and the kingdom of light. Biblically and practically speaking, we are in a spiritual war. The Christian spiritual enemy is not in uniform, and he doesn't meet us on an identifiable battlefield. He uses ruthless and unconventional tactics such as deceit, deflection, and disguise. The Church of Jesus Christ needs to know its enemies and his strategies. Above all, Christians need to know how to gain victory over this enemy. In this episode, we take a practical look at how to use the sword of the Spirit to resist thoughts and temptations that seek to entice us off the path of life and onto the road of destruction. Thanks for joining us today for season number two, episode number 18 of Mission Focus Men for Christ. My name is Gary Yeagle. As we continue the series, Winning Spiritual Battles, because we use our spiritual weapons, we come today to Paul's admonition to take up the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God, this text being from Ephesians 6:17. One of the best things about this weapon is that, unlike the others, we actually get to see Jesus using it in Scripture. We'll dig into a study of Jesus' combat with Satan in a moment, but let's first get to know a bit about this weapon. This actual weapon is, of course, the Word of God, which is so powerful for transforming human minds and hearts that it is called living in the book of Hebrews. Chapter 4, verses 12 through 13 read, For the Word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and spirit of joints and marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. As we will see, even Jesus did not battle Satan with his own thoughts, but only by quoting Scripture. The Greek word for sword, makaira, does not describe the swashbuckling kind of sword used by Zorro. Rather, it was quite short, more like a dagger. It was used by the Romans in close hand-to-hand combat. This weapon is for personal attacks. The truth that this weapon is for personal attacks is underscored by the Greek word Paul chooses for word in Word of God. It is not logos, which connotes broad general principles. Rather, Paul chooses rhema, which refers to specific utterings. New Testament scholar W.E. Vine writes, The significance of rhema as distinct from logos is exemplified in the injunction to take up the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. Here, the reference is not to the whole Bible as such, but to the individual Scripture passages, which the Spirit brings to our remembrance for use in time of need. A prerequisite being, of course, the regular storing of the mind with Scripture. Identifying the Word of God as the sword of the Spirit 
is consistent with what we know about the work of the Holy Spirit. Not only does he indwell Christ followers so that they have the presence of Christ with them at all times, that's what we mean by abiding in Christ, the Holy Spirit's work is to help us overcome our sinful nature and transform our hearts into Christ-like attitudes, love, joy, peace, and so forth. So the Holy Spirit is right inside us to help us when thoughts come into our minds designed by Satan to lead us away from Christ and his righteous path. He is there to help us recall the right truth in Scripture to combat Satan's lies. But of course, we can't recall what we have never read or committed to memory. Let's zoom into the wilderness of Judea and take a look at Jesus as he wields the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. This comes to us from Matthew chapter 4. Jesus was led up by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. And after fasting 40 days and 40 nights, he was hungry. And the tempter came and said to him, If you're the Son of God, command these stones to become loaves of bread. But he answered, It is written, Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. Satan begins the temptation by appealing to Jesus' power. If you are the Son of God, use that power to turn stones into bread. What many don't realize is that Jesus' hunger after a long fast meant that he was close to death. Those who have practiced long fasts point out that after six or seven days in a fast, hunger pains go away. If they have water, a human can last about 40 days. But when his hunger pangs return, he must eat soon or he will die. Jesus was being tempted not to have to depend upon his heavenly Father, but to use his spiritual power to take care of his own desperate needs. The passage he cites is Deuteronomy 8.3. The verse before it provides some important context. The Israelites are about to enter the promised land. And so God says, And you shall remember the whole way that the Lord your God has led you these 40 years in the wilderness, that he might humble you, testing you to know what was in your heart, whether you would keep his commandments or not. And he humbled you, and he let you hunger, and fed you with manna, which you did not know, nor did your fathers know, that he might make you know that man does not live by bread alone, but man lives by every word that comes from the mouth of the Lord. Dependency upon God for your daily bread reflects the humility that is vital for depending upon God's moral law every day. Jesus refused the temptation to stop depending in humility upon his heavenly Father. The first Adam refused to depend upon God to satisfy his hunger for food, failing to trust God's instruction not to eat of the tree in the middle of the garden. Instead, Adam allowed the delicious fruit to entice him into rebellion against God. He violated God's moral law and ate. The first Adam put his physical appetite ahead of obedience to God. The second Adam, Jesus, 
though at the point of dying because of his need for food, refused to take matters into his own hands. He humbled himself, depending upon God. In quoting Deuteronomy 8.3, man does not live by bread alone, but man lives by every word that comes from the mouth of God. Jesus is saying real life comes not just through physical sustenance, but also by obedience to God. That is the lesson God wanted to teach the Israelites in the wilderness. Let's move to the second temptation in Matthew 4, verses 5 through 7. Then the devil took him to the holy city and set him on the pinnacle of the temple and said to him, If you are the son of God, throw yourself down, for it is written, He will command his angels concerning you, and on their hands they will bear you up, lest you strike your foot against a stone. Jesus said to him, Again it is written, You shall not put the Lord your God to the test. In the second temptation, Satan again appeals to Jesus' power, if you are the Son of God. The temptation, though, is to throw himself off the pinnacle of the temple in Jerusalem, proving that he was the Messiah, and thus winning a following. In response, Jesus quotes Deuteronomy 6.16, You shall not put the Lord your God to the test as you tested him at Massa. Here's what the Israelites did at Massa from Exodus 17. Israel was camping at Rephidim, but there was no water for the people to drink. Therefore, the people quarreled with Moses and said, give us water to drink. And Moses said to them, why do you quarrel with me? Why do you test the Lord? But the people thirsted there for water, and the people grumbled against Moses and said, Why did you bring us up out of Egypt to kill us and our children and our livestock with thirst? So Moses cried to the Lord, What shall I do with this people? They are almost ready to stone me. Well, God provides water from the rock that Moses struck. And then Moses sums up what happened in the words, They tested the Lord by saying, Is the Lord among us or not? The sin of the Israelites was demanding that God prove himself in the way they decided he must do so. Had Jesus thrown himself off the pinnacle of the temple in Jerusalem, it is likely that the Jewish people, recognizing by this supernatural feat that Jesus was the Messiah, would have immediately risen up in rebellion against the Roman occupation. A bloodbath probably would have ensued, and the people would have coronated Jesus the king of a political Israel. Instead, Jesus must defeat the more deadly triumvirate, Satan, sin, and death, by going to the cross, inaugurating the spiritual kingdom of Israel, Christ's kingdom of righteousness. What's the difference, then, between having faith that God will work supernaturally to answer our prayer and thus pleasing God, and sinful presumption which puts God to the test? Well, I think it is partly that genuine faith always includes humility. Consider, for example, the faith of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego in Daniel. When told by Nebuchadnezzar that they must fall down and worship his statue or be cast into the fiery furnace, they answered, O Nebuchadnezzar, we have no need to answer you in this matter. If this be so, our God, whom we serve, is able to deliver us from the burning fiery furnace, and he will deliver us out of your hand, O king. But if not, 
Be it known to you, O king, that we will not serve your gods or worship the golden image that you have set up. In contrast, the arrogant Israelites in the wilderness demanded that God give them water when and where they wanted it. Their arrogance is revealed in demanding that God prove himself to them their way instead of in God's way. Jumping off the temple pinnacle would have demanded that God prove Jesus was the Messiah and win a following Jesus' way rather than God's way. Jesus' third temptation is given in Matthew 4, verses 8 through 11. Again, the devil took him to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their glory. And he said to him, all of these I will give you if you will fall down and worship me. Then Jesus said to him, be gone, Satan, for it is written, you shall worship the Lord your God and him only shall you serve. Then the devil left him. And behold, angels came and were ministering to him. In this temptation, Satan offers to give Jesus rulership over every kingdom of the world if he would just hit his knees and worship Satan once. At this point in Jesus' sinless life, his heart must have been full of perfect love for humans. Jesus must have thought back over all the centuries of human suffering in those kingdoms, caused by Satan's rule of the earth since Adam's rebellion. Imagine all the suffering Jesus could relieve, all the healing he could perform, all the good he could do if he were just in charge of Adam's kingdom instead of Satan. It would just take one small compromise, just genuflect once, and he could avoid the horrible agony of the cross and rule Adam's kingdom for good. But thanks be to God, Jesus resisted Satan's enticing offer. Satan tempted the first Adam and Eve to become like God, knowing good and evil. They chose rebellion rather than submission. Satan tempts the second Adam to be like God, the God of this world ruling all the kingdoms of earth. And Jesus fought off the temptation with God's word. Deuteronomy 6.13, Be gone, Satan, for it is written, You shall worship the Lord your God, and him only shall you serve. Jesus parries every blow Satan attempts by citing a relevant, specific passage of Scripture. But what about us? I mean, Jesus grew up in an oral culture where practicing Jews like Joseph and Mary had their children memorize much of the Torah. Certainly, this is a strong motivation to stay devoted to reading and studying Scripture ourselves, since this is such a vital weapon in our arsenal. But is there some way in our culture to train ourselves to wield the sword of the Spirit when temptation strikes without having to memorize half the Bible? David Jeremiah, the founder of Turning Points, answers that question, yes, from his own life, he writes, Years ago, my friend Swen Nader and I got together at a restaurant. We talked about the areas where we thought the enemy would come after us, and we took a concordance and researched the scriptures. We came up with about 40 what he calls swords, that is, specific verses for specific temptations, for each of us, which we stored in the armories of our minds. 
I suggest that you do the same. Think of the areas in which you know Satan will tempt you, find some Bible verses relating to those areas, and write them out on little cards. Maybe put them where you will see them often. Memorize them, internalize them, learn them by heart, and be ready to use them when the enemy attacks. Well, even Jesus did not try to fight Satan's temptations without quoting Scripture, using the sword of the Spirit, the Word of God. Here's a list of temptations and correlating combat truths that you might find helpful from Scripture. Number one, when I doubt that following Christ is worthwhile. Psalm 34.10, even the young lions suffer want and hunger, but those who seek the Lord shall not be in want of any good thing. Number two, When inwardly bored, the temptation to indulge in lustful pleasure strikes. Matthew 5, 6. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Number three. When God wants me to give more generously than I want to. Luke 6, 38. Give, and it will be given to you. Good measure, pressed down, shaken together, running over will be put into your lap. For with the measure you use, it will be measured back to you. Number four, when I am angry because of my wife's critical words. Proverbs 12.1, whoever hates correction is stupid. Number five, when I am repelled by my wife's selfishness, feeling like I work at meeting her needs way more than she works at meeting mine. Ephesians 5.25, Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself for her. Number six, when anger seeks to control my decisions. James 1.20, the anger of man does not produce the righteousness of God. Number seven, when I have more month left than money, and I am tempted to worry. Philippians 4.19 My God will supply every need of yours according to his riches in glory in Christ Jesus. Number eight, the temptation to get a better deal by bending the truth a little. Proverbs 10.2 Ill-gotten gains do not profit, but righteousness rescues from death. Number nine, when I'm envious of a friend's new house, car, or other possession. Matthew six nineteen through 21. Don't pile up treasures on earth where moth and rust can spoil them and thieves can break in and steal. But keep your treasure in heaven where there is neither moth nor rust to spoil it and nobody can break in and steal. For wherever your treasure is, you may be certain that your heart will be there too. Number 10, when everything is going wrong and I want to murmur against the Lord. Romans 8, 28, for those who love God, all things work together for good for those who are called according to his purpose. Number 11, when my pain and suffering send the message that God doesn't love me. Hebrews 12, 6, for the Lord disciplines the one he loves 
and chastises every son whom he receives. Number 12. When I want more sugar and don't feel like working out. 1 Corinthians 6, 19-21 Do you not know that your bodies are temples of the Holy Spirit? Therefore, honor God with your bodies. Number 13. The temptation to spin the truth so I am seen in a more favorable light. Proverbs twelve nineteen, Truthful lips will endure forever, but a lying tongue is only for a moment. The results of yielding to Satan's temptation is always destruction. But wielding the sword of the Spirit fends off the thoughts and impulses that the enemy plants in our minds to lead us into death. The Word of God brings life. This truth led King David to write Psalm 19 and sing, The law of the Lord is perfect, restoring my soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. The precepts of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. The commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. They are more desirable than gold. Yes, than much pure gold, sweeter also than honey and drippings of the honeycomb. To summarize this episode, understanding the spiritual battle between the kingdom of darkness and the kingdom of light is not just for Christian pastors and elders to understand. Every Christian man must understand it so he can fight to protect himself his wife, his kids, and even his community. The sword of the Spirit, the Word of God, is extremely sharp, reaching into the hearts of men to expose their thoughts and motives. As we watched Jesus use this weapon in combat with Satan, we see that Jesus parries every temptation with the appropriate, specific scripture verse. When tempted to stop depending upon God for the bread he needed to stay alive, and violate a few details about the Messiah, using his messianic power selfishly to stay alive, Jesus quotes Deuteronomy 6.16, Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. When tempted to win followers, proving his messianic powers by jumping off a pinnacle of the temple in Jerusalem, Jesus remembered the sin of the Israelites who put God to the test and quoted scripture, you shall not put the Lord your God to the test. In being tempted to take back Adam's kingdom from Satan the easy way, with just bowing to Satan once and avoid the awful cross, Jesus quoted the most relevant text, Deuteronomy 6.13, You shall worship the Lord your God, and him only shall you serve. We then identified 13 common temptations of men, and a scripture verse to combat that temptation. If you would like a printed copy of those 13, go to our website, forgingbonds.org backslash blog for the printed version of the article. If you have not gotten to listen to the two episodes in this series on the Lord's Prayer, you might check out season two, episode number nine, January 3rd, and number 10, January 10th, to see how to link our daily prayer to our everyday mission as Christ followers. For further prayerful thought, 
Number one, do you think this is a fair statement? If a man is not winning his own spiritual battles, he won't be very effective helping his wife and children win theirs. See the episode notes for further questions. Today's podcast, as all podcasts are, is available in printed format on my website, forgingbonds.org. Next week, we continue the series entitled Winning Spiritual Battles because we use our spiritual weapons by looking at the last weapon Paul mentions, battle-focused prayer. What does that look like, and how can our prayers bring about more spiritual wins for ourselves and our loved ones? 